Let us pray. God, take our ears and hear through them. Take our minds and think through them. Take our hearts and set them on fire. For Christ's sake we pray. Amen. Now, one of my favorite lines uh, in the movies comes from the film Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Maybe you remember that movie. Um, in the film Indiana Jones and, and in, in a, a rival Nazi sympathizing archaeologist are searching for the Holy Grail, for the cup of Christ, for the chalice that Jesus uh, shared the Last Supper with his disciples, because it was believed that, there, that the cup itself shared some uh, power, that anyone who drank from this cup would live forever. So by the end of the film, Indiana Jones and this archaeologist have found the cup in a cave, but it's one among many cups, many chalices, and, uh, and you have to choose. And so this Nazi sympathizing archaeologist grabs the most ornate cup, he dips it in water, he drinks deeply, and for a moment he imagines that he has inherited the gift of eternal life, and then his face melts off and he dies. At least that's how I remember the villain in that movie uh, dying. And at that point, this, this ancient knight who has been guarding the, the, the Holy Grail for centuries, I mean, the film does require some suspension of disbelief. This ancient knight turns to Indiana Jones and says, he chose poorly. It's <laughs> my favorite line, he chose poorly. That's actually a go-to line in our family. Whenever someone does something that's not very bright, you chose poorly, dad. Well, we all make a lot of choices in life. We all face a lot of decisions. Um, and as this pandemic winds down and as our lives sort of gear back up, we're going to face a lot more. In fact, every day we face a lot of choices uh, just about food. I was reading a study earlier this week that came out of Cornell. It was done a few years back now. But these researchers at Cornell asked uh, colleagues at the university, they asked students, they asked some of the staff, how many decisions they thought they made each day just, just about food? Well, how many decisions do you think you make about food? I mean, what am I gonna have for breakfast? Are we gonna go out for lunch? Am I gonna have dessert after dinner? Am I gonna have ice cream with dessert after dinner? On average, people thought they made about 15 decisions a day. But then the researchers asked, uh, asked folks some more specific questions when they ate, what they ate, how much they ate, where they ate, they asked them about meals, they asked them about snacks, they asked them about drinks. By the end of it, they determined that people on average every day make 221 decisions just about food. And think of all the other decisions that we make, I mean, what to wear, what to buy, what to read, what to watch, what to play. And then there are all those big decisions, right? I mean, what are we gonna do with our lives? Who are we gonna marry? Are we gonna marry? Where are we gonna live? Uh, and, and all the rest. So the question is, for all those decisions, how do we not choose poorly? And of course, decision-making is, is, is very complex. Um, a lot of the choices we make are, are just sort of on autopilot. We don't even think twice about them. Um, the environment we find ourselves in impacts our decisions because it, it, it affects what's available to us. It limits by what's not available to us. Uh, fatigue impacts decision-making. If you're tired, studies show that our capacity for making good choices deteriorates dramatically. So for all the choices that we face, uh, for all the complexity of decision-making, how do we not choose poorly? Well, in this letter to the Philippians, uh, Paul 
is pretty clear that the choices we make are deeply rooted in the kind of people that we are. So for Paul, what to do isn't the first question. Now, true, by the end of the reading today, he writes that we're to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. He ends with a clear call to will and to work for God's good pleasure. But that's not where it starts, right? So the first part of chapter two builds toward verse five, where Paul writes, let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. Let the mind of Christ be in you. Let yourself be so transformed that it's Christ who is thinking through you. He ends with, you know, work out your salvation. Live out the gospel daily, practically, fully. But he begins with, let the same mind be in you who's in Christ Jesus. And it strikes me that that order is terrifically significant. That before asking, what am I supposed to do uh, today, tomorrow, with the rest of my life? Paul pushes us to ask the prior question. And that is, what kind of person am I supposed to be? What kind of person am I? Are we created to be? What attitude? What identity? What commitments? What character? Because the decisions that we face, the choices that we make, are all rooted deeply in the kind of people that we are. So a story about the way who we are determines uh, what we do. Many of you, I think, will be familiar uh, or know about Clarence Jordan. Clarence Jordan was a New Testament scholar, lived in the South. This was back in the mid-20th century. Some of you will remember that he wrote the Cotton Patch version of the Gospels in which he set the Gospels in the vernacular, in the culture of Georgia and of Atlanta. Well, Clarence Jordan was deeply concerned about racism. And so he and some friends founded Koinonia Farms in America's Georgia. Some of you also know that Habitat for Humanity, uh, the idea emerged and grew there in, uh, in America's Georgia at Koinonia Farms. It was meant to be a model farm. It was gonna be a farm where other farmers could come and learn about crops and other farming techniques. But even more, uh, Koinonia Farms was meant to be an expression of the radical vision of the gospel. Black people, white people would work together, they would live together, they would eat together, they would pray and worship together. Well, in the 40s and 50s, that was, that was not a popular idea, maybe especially in Georgia, maybe especially uh, in the South. And so uh, Clarence Jordan and his family were actually excommunicated from their, their little church uh, for having the audacity to live and work together, black and white. And Koinonia Farms experienced they were the target of an economic boycott. Nobody would buy their produce. Banks wouldn't handle their accounts. Uh, no one would sell them fuel. Well, Clarence Jordan uh, was not a retiring type. He was pretty straightforward. And so one day he confronted one of these boycotters and a reporter happened to be there and witnessed the exchange. So Clarence went up to the butane truck driver and said, uh, why haven't you been around? And the fellow said, I can't. If I do, I'll lose all my other customers. It'll ruin my business. And Jordan said, well, looks like you're on the spot. You're either going to lose some money or you're going to lose your soul. And the guy said, my God, Mr. Jordan, I don't know what to do. This thing has got me so fouled up that I got a headache all the time. I want to keep serving you, but I'm afraid. I'm afraid I'm getting a truck blown up someday. And Jordan said, I feel sorry for you. Maybe you'll lose your truck, but you'll lose your headache too. And finally, the guy said, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'll get you your gas. I'll get another man to sell it to you. And Clarence, Clarence Jordan didn't move. He, he just said, you mean to tell me you'd ask a friend to take a chance that you're not willing to take yourself? And see, that truck driver was in a pretty tough spot. What should he do? 
But in reality, that decision had already been made. It was rooted in who he was, in the values that he held, in the fears that controlled him. Who he was, in large measure, determined what he did. And that's the message that's embedded in this chapter from the letter to the Philippians. What we do is determined in large measure by who we are and by whose we are. And so Paul writes, let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. Paul unambiguously calls us to be Christ's, to be shaped by Christ. Now our mind's so transformed that it is Christ thinking through us at home, at work, with friends, with colleagues, in our families, as a church. Because Paul knows that when we let Christ take our minds and think through them as a prayed Sunday, then we can start to imagine, we can start to trust, to hope for the vision, for the dream, for the promise of the beloved community, a place where people, as Kirk put it earlier, play together. That's what happened at Koinonia Farms. Uh, and long before it, it's what happened in Philippi. See, the story behind this letter to the Philippians is told in Acts chapter 16. When Paul first went to Philippi, and he went uh, several times, probably three times he was in Philippi. When Paul first went to Philippi, a woman named Lydia heard Paul speak. She heard the good news. She heard the gospel. And she came to trust, to hope, to believe in Jesus. Now, we're told that uh, Lydia was a dealer in purple cloth. Purple cloth back then was very costly to produce, very lucrative to sell. And so Lydia, a woman, owned her own business. She was independent. She was likely wealthy. On that same visit, Paul and, and the others with him, Silas and probably Luke, encountered a slave girl. She could tell fortunes. And so she was being exploited by her owners. Well, Paul and Silas freed this young girl from the spirits that haunted her, but that also dried up the profits of her owners. And so for the trouble, they ended up in jail where they encounter a third person. Through an ex a series of extraordinary events, and I'll let you read Acts chapter 16 for yourself, the jailer, a Roman soldier, was baptized, he and his family. So, wealthy woman, exploited girl, Roman soldier. And that ancient church in Philippi, you can see the breadth and the width and the power of God's love to heal, to liberate, to break down barriers, barriers of race, of class, of ethnicity, of nationality, of sexuality, and to draw people, to draw us all into the beloved community. I mean, it's a wondrous vision. It's a winsome vision of the gospel, of the good news. But it can be hard to imagine. It can be hard to believe. It can be hard to sustain. I mean, in any community, there are a lot of decisions to be made, a lot of choices to face. And in a community where you have people of different backgrounds, different experiences, different social classes, it's easy to get sideways with each other pretty quickly. And so Paul writes to the church in Philippi then, and he writes to us here in the church in Portland still, let the same mind be in you. It was in Christ Jesus. Now, the key trait that Paul draws out in this chapter two is humility. So he writes to the church, and this is verses four and five, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you look not to your own self-interest, but to the interests of others. 
And then he reminds them of the example of Jesus. Though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as a thing to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness, being born in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. To have the same mind in us that was in Christ Jesus, to live into the promise of the beloved community requires the character of humility. Now, to be sure, in our culture, humility is not much prized. We tend to admire prominent people, powerful people, celebrities, self-made successes. It's said that um, when someone once described a rival politician as being a humble man, Winston Churchill said, well, of course, he has a lot to be humble about. Churchill was fairly dismissive of the virtue of humility. But for Paul, humility is essential. Our word humility comes from the Latin root humus, which means earth. And on the one hand, that explains how humility can be seen as weakness, right? The humble get walked on. It also explains how humility uh, can be exploited. That happens whenever powerful people tell vulnerable, oppressed, abused, lowly people, be humble. Think more highly of others than yourself. Stay in your place. That's how oppression and abuse go on and on. But that's not right. And that's not what humility means. Humility, from humus, more rightly means fertile ground. Ground that's ready to be worked, to be cultivated, to be planted, to be fruitful. When we are proud, when we are too certain of ourselves, when we are driven by, as Paul puts it, selfish ambition, we have very little capacity to listen, to learn, to grow, to serve, to share. To be humble is to let the love of God, the grace of God, the wisdom of God work the soil of our lives, thawing out the frozen places, breaking up the hard places, uprooting the sin that so easily entangles us, enriching our souls, and planting seeds, seeds of healing and hope, of peace and patience, of compassion and courage and justice and mercy. To be humble is to let God's love take root in us and grow in us the capacity to love each other, to love all others as God has loved us all. To be humble is to be fertile ground. So to be humble means we have to ask questions like, have our hearts grown cold? Are there people that we've frozen out of our lives? Uh, have we let hurtful habits, selfish deceits, selfish ambitions, have we let sin take root in us? Have we let ourselves be hardened to the plight of people, people who are homeless, people who are fleeing violence, people who are living with mental illness? Are there people whose voices we don't hear or don't want to hear, people we don't listen for, people we're not willing to learn from? Are we willing to recognize the impact that our lives, our choices, our decisions have on others? Those are tough questions sometimes for us, us to ask of ourselves honestly, but we ask them in the hope and in the faith that as we humble ourselves, God's love can take root in us, and our lives can bear the fruit of compassion and kindness and grace and peace.
We face a lot of decisions every day, choices that shape our lives, choices that affect our relationships, choices that impact the earth we all share. But the choices we make are rooted deeply in the kind of people we are. So may we be humble. May we be fertile ground. And may the same mind that was in Christ Jesus be planted in us. Maybe so. Amen.